Hello and welcome to the Myland Institute podcast, which is coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. Today's special episode comes via No Man's Land, a podcast affiliated with the Women in History Forum at QM. I'm Connie Thomas. And I'm Sophie Wilson, and we are two second-year PhD students at QM. We established the Inclusive Forum with the dual aims of encouraging more women into the field and supporting those already working within it. Today, we are joined by Dr. Sumita Mukherjee, Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley, and Professor Barbara Taylor to hear about their experiences, and we'll hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Samita Mukherjee. I'm Associate Professor in Modern History at the University of Bristol. My particular interests are in migration and gender in the 19th and 20th centuries in the British Empire and in India. Hi, I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. I am lecturer in 20th century British history at the University of Southampton. And my interests are in the cultural, social and political history of Britain in the 20th century. And I'm writing a book about the way that empire impacted on the British metropole in the 20th century. Hello, I'm Barbara Taylor. I'm Professor of Humanities at Queen Mary. I live in both the schools of history and English and drama. I'm currently the principal investigator on a project, Welcome to Trust-funded project called Pathologies of Solitude, 18th to 21st century. Welcome to you all and thank you so much for joining us. One thing Sophie and I are trying to do as part of the Women in History Forum is to better understand how women navigate academic life. And a well-publicised example of this is the backlash that Dr Jill Biden faced for literally having and using the title doctor. And we wondered what your thoughts on this were and whether or not it resonated to your own experiences. Charlotte, I saw that you've recently tweeted about this and wondered if you wanted to start us off. I have, yeah. And there's often this backlash. This has been this backlash a few times. So I have doctor in my Twitter name. Um, Like it says, my name is Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I, I, I probably wouldn't normally choose to do that. But a few years ago, a lot of female academics chose to put doctor into their Twitter name because there was a very similar kind of criticism of a female historian who dared to use doctor in the way that she described herself, even though she had a PhD in history. And it always makes me think of there's a there's a poem by a poet called Susan Harlan called My First Name, which starts, no, you can't call me by my first name. And yes, I know that a male professor told you that titles are silly. You know, the backlash against it was obviously very welcome. And it was it was nice that so many people kind of stood up in support of Jill Biden saying, of course, she should use a doctor. She has a doctorate in the, you know, in continuing education, she's going to continue doing this this job whilst her husband is president. The fact that the Wall Street Journal felt that it was appropriate to publish such a ridiculous piece of opinion writing was was quite dispiriting, I thought. It was disappointing to see it in such a public forum and almost elevating it to that level of public discussion was disappointing uh, in itself. Barbara, did you have any thoughts on it? I was sort of amused to see this. I mean, it wasn't, of course, amusing at the time in the sense of, you know, it was a very nasty jab to Dr. Biden. But um, uh, I remember uh, years ago, um, a medical friend pointing out to me that calling a medical doctor's doctor is a courtesy title, which is one of the reasons why surgeons in this country don't use it. Uh, use, you know, Mr. Ms., Mrs., whatever, because you have to earn a doctorate in medicine to call yourself doctor. So this doctor friend said to me, so you're a doctor, actually, and I'm not. And um, so I remember being slightly taken aback, but also a woman friend, I mean, this is many years ago, had a doctorate in, in, in anthropology, said to me, Barbara, women must always use 
their titles. Titles are things that, uh, you know, women earn and they work really hard to achieve. So why shouldn't they be able to use them? And why shouldn't they get the respect of using them as well? Um, Yeah, I completely agree. It was obviously a very disappointing article from the Wall Street Journal, but it also wasn't particularly surprising to me. This idea that women's expertise is undermined was not surprising, just as a kind of totally irrelevant thing, just with Barbara's talking about hospitals and medical doctors. I always find it, so I always use the doctor title, it's on all my cards and everything. A medical doctor always sees my name, sees doctor and says, oh, what's your speciality? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always find mm-hmm. it so amusing when I say, well, actually, you know, it's 19th to 20th century British history and the histories of empires and migration in India. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, they're expecting me to say something totally different, something medical. You've all talked about the idea of the women's doctor title being somewhat undermined by certain aspects of society and and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about if that's something that you've experienced more widely in the field of academia because for us in the Women in History Forum we speak to a lot of undergraduates and there's this kind of twofold thing of feeling slightly undermined but also a sense of self-confidence that is missing in a lot of women undergraduates. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a really interesting thing for me to reflect back on because I didn't I didn't intend to become a historian. I became a historian through politics. I mean, I'm looking back now to the women's liberation movement. It was working on the the history of women in the context of this big mobilization of women in the 1970s um, when I was uh, just beginning my graduate studies and the tremendous excitement that there was around um, the you know, forging this whole area of work, which had basically been pretty much non-existent. And I, I did it in the context of a very um, of a sort of democratizing historical movement called the History Workshop Movement, which has left quite a lot of legacies. And I'm still involved with History Workshop Journal and History Workshop Online and so on. So, so it was a very particular point of entry for women. There was no women's history in the universities. And um, so we had to build it extramural. I mean, it was a wonderfully positive experience. And eventually, most of us did make our way into the university system. The answer in some broad sense would have to be no. I mean, it was an incredibly exciting time to be a young woman starting to do work in this field. And the men that, you know, were inside the kind of, you know, this sort of progressive historical community that I belong to were by and large incredibly supportive of this and excited about it and so on. You know, they would hold the babies while we... (laughs) (laughs) while we worked. But I'm, um, I'm an intellectual historian primarily. And that is a field which has been extremely male dominated, particularly the history of political thought. And I think there... I mean, the marginalization of um, women from traditions of political thought, just the sense that somehow, you know, we were outside both um, as subjects for discussion and as practitioners of the trade of intellectual history. And that has been much more of an issue for me. Um, finally, Mary Wollstonecraft, who is one of the people I've paid a great deal of attention to, was allowed entry into the canon of um, major political thinkers. Uh, so I have felt rather militant, I think, at times about trying to um, open up intellectual history more to women. And I think that has been happening. There are actually a lot now of um, women going into intellectual history and being mentored both by women already there, but also, I should say, by some uh, men, leading men in the field who have been very keen to move this forward. So, So I have to say that in general, 
my experience of, of being a historian um, as a woman has been very positive. Samita, I wondered if, if this is something that you had, had experienced or if uh, there are certain types of history where perhaps it's harder to break into being a woman. The fields I work on are slightly more female dominated. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the fields I work on is in women's history. <laughs> and that is, uh, unfortunately, very dominated by women. I say unfortunately, because it's often seen as only the, you know, the purview and only something that women should be interested in and, and write about. So I haven't faced the issues of of kind of having to prove myself in my own discipline in that way. I think in terms of you know, the early question about confidence and self-confidence as, as a woman, as a historian, as, mm-hmm. when as a student and later on. I think it's something that, you know, I liked a lot of self-confidence as a young academic. I got my PhD 13 years ago, and I would only say in the last two or three years have I really felt confident about myself as a historian. So especially in my early career, I had lots of issues with my self-confidence. I would go to conferences and often be mistaken for a grad student and just feel very belittled by that. I've had a career which was has been beset by a lot of precarity, um, which also has had issues for my confidence as an academic and as a woman in spaces which are often so although my field in itself is not has not had issues with women entering it just the workplace itself has been an issue so I've been in departments which have been very male dominated mm-hmm. and and being feeling like a minority both because of my gender and my race has often been difficult to you know to find a voice for yourself in kind of staff meetings and other social and work-related environments has been um, hard. The kind of like almost imposter syndrome is something that undergrads all the way up to more senior lecturers have experienced, um, which is both reassuring in the sense that what what one is feeling is kind of more universal, but also it kind of reflects on this much bigger picture. So thank you for sharing that. I think there's sort of two ways I could think about this. And the first is in terms of field and sort of fields where women feel feel welcome or less welcome so I I did a PhD in essentially diplomatic history I I wrote a PhD about the history of the Marshall Plan and um, colonial development at um, UCL and I had a female supervisor for that Professor Kathleen Burke but she stands out as being a woman in that field there are not I mean diplomatic history is is an unusual field now because actually it's something it's been kind of replaced by international history and there's lots of different ways of doing it but certainly when when my PhD supervisor started there were very, very few women in that field. And even when I was doing my PhD, I felt like there were very few women in that field. So the conferences I attended as a PhD student and as an ECR were often very male-dominated. Um, they were often very Oxbridge-dominated as well. So it was that kind of sort of interlocking class and gender thing going on that often made me feel quite uncomfortable in those spaces. But there was also, I also had the feeling that I, I, this history wasn't necessarily completely for me. And part of the reason I think I had done it, and you know, I'm, I'm very, very happy I did my PhD, um, and I very much enjoyed working with my supervisor, but I think there was part of me that really wanted to prove that I could do that sort of history, that I could do this kind of grown-up history, um, this sort of typically male history. I wrote a lot about money and diplomacy and trade agreements um, and my first article was published on the history of the OEC and getting a permanent job at Southampton and thinking harder about the sort of history I wanted to do particularly actually through my teaching I started teaching a lot more kind of cultural history I I 
right from the beginning of my my job at Southampton, I was teaching a course on women's history. And I've moved into that more and more. And my publishing has gradually moved more and more into that space. And the book that I'm writing is is a cultural history of empire in Britain. And it's, it's all about ordinary people. And there's lots of women's stories. It kind of took a lot of confidence for me to sort of say actually this history is valid and it's something that I can do as a professional historian. Of course lots of women do do diplomatic history and and that kind of political and foreign policy history and I wouldn't say want to say it's a space that women don't belong of course it absolutely is for women who want to be there but I think I didn't really want to be there and I was sort of there to try to prove a point and um and I'm much more comfortable now that I'm in the space and I also now you know the first time I went to a women's history network conference was just this incredible thing of being in this space full of women working on women's history. And, and as Sumita says, you know, we don't, we don't want that to be a space just for women. We want male historians to be working on these topics as well. But it did feel incredible compared to being in some of the spaces I've been in before. Like it felt like this really nurturing, encouraging space. Um, and I've made lots of very good friends in, in that kind of environment. I think in terms of confidence, and particularly with students, I get quite frustrated when you hear female undergraduates being advised to be like more like male undergraduates and, and the kind of very typical kind of instruction feedback on writing, for example, you know, telling female students to write more like a man is obviously actually meaningless in terms of, you know, there, there's not a sort of genetic predisposition to the way that we write. But also, I do think there's sometimes a way in which women are encouraged either at undergraduate level or later on to act more like male colleagues in order to be taken seriously rather than as thinking actually other ways in which we could change our expectations of how spe- people speak or how people write or how people behave like do, do we always have to fit into this masculine norm and does the emphasis really have to be on pushing women to move into that kind of framework and could we not actually be a bit more understanding of these sort of supposedly like female ways of writing for example is is there not a way for us to be a bit more kind of open to that talking about the the sense of community is is a really important thing and supportive communities for all types of historians is is something that's really important one of the things that i've been very struck by i mean i i occupy as i say two different i'm in two different departments and the history department is 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 very male dominated the English department is uh, very female dominated, and it makes for all kinds of fascinating cultural differences. But I think that, you know, I'm originally from, from Canada, uh, and um, it took me a long time to get any grip on the class system in this country. Thinking about my male colleagues, over time, I really perceive the gap between the kind of Oxbridge background, um, particularly as younger um, scholars coming in. I think we need to re- remember the absolutely um, crucial role that other um, sort of social divisions play in the way that people find their way into the academy and how they experience it. And I do think that class background, which university you went to, what your connections were, and so on and so forth, plays a major role for both sexes. Women who come up through maybe an Oxford education may have more advantages Advantages than um, you know some of their male colleagues who do not, and um, on the and then of course now we are very very conscious about questions of um, ethnic diversity um, as well, um, which is something that I think you know people are really trying now to think about more seriously, come to grips with. This is a very very difficult area for history in particular. I mean, as I'm sure. Everybody here knows it's been it's been much discussed recently and lots of thoughts about how things can be changed, resistance to change and so on. So I just want to sort of make the obvious 
point about that. I think everything people have been saying is really interesting and important. And I wouldn't suggest for a moment being female doesn't make a difference and that that difference can be one that can be quite hard for um, uh, individual women and for women collectively within the discipline. But I do think this is a very class-ridden society and it is a very, very racially unequal society. I wouldn't want us to have this conversation without no one here needs reminding of these things. I just wanted to say it. From my perspective, certainly, I've I've been thinking quite a lot recently, actually, about how I grew up quite poor and I was on free school meals and I went to a comprehensive school and I went to UCL. It's not Oxbridge, but it's a very elite institution. And um, it was a real culture shock for me. And I, when I was doing my PhD, um, part of the way I funded my PhD was through working in the widening participation department and doing lots of work with, with local schools and with, with kids who had kind of backgrounds similar to me who had, you know, were on free school meals and who didn't necessarily have a family history of going into education and things like this, which kind of doing that work was really important for me personally and politically, but it also sort of lulled me into thinking that people in academic care more about that issue than actually structurally academia does. And I'm still quite surprised by how bad we are at this, um, how bad institutions are at this. I'm not sure how much my sort of lack of confidence in academia earlier on came from, how much it came from class and how much it came from gender. And I think that one of the reasons I've become more confident is because I have materially become more middle class. And I've also, I've got a lot of the social social and cultural capital that I didn't have 10 years ago that made it difficult for me in academia to make connections and to understand how the world worked. And so actually that to me says maybe some of this was actually class, not gender, because that was stuff that I could kind of be exposed to and and, and kind of learn very gradually. Obviously, we are living in extraordinary times. I'm sure I don't need to remind anyone of that. And we were kind of wondering in what ways you found your experiences have been impacted by the past year. I mean, studies show that women academics have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And we were wondering how that's perhaps presented itself for you. Um, So I've had an unusual pandemic because I was on maternity leave for um, most of it. So I was on maternity leave from January 2020 and I just came back to work in January 2021. So I had a full 12 months off and I I missed the, the immediate harsh effects the pandemic has had on many of my colleagues. So, you know, in many ways I wasn't affected in the ways other colleagues were. Um, And I think it's also really important to note that, you know, I'm in a very secure permanent position right now in terms of my employment, um, which allowed me, first of all, to to be able to take off 12 months maternity leave, which not many um, people can do, but also um, to be less affected by the pandemic. Um, I've come back to work full time uh, with a one year old and it's been a a harsh learning curve coming back um, anyway to work with a one year old let alone in a pandemic. And I think it's really important to note that the pandemic has affected everyone so harshly. And I don't think it's, I mean, I know it's not um, exclusive to one gender or sex. And there are people outside of academia who are facing such hardships that people who are have secure employment have, have not had to at all. You know, this is an issue for anyone who is the primary carer for someone, whether it's a child or someone else during the pandemic. It's been difficult. Um, it's difficult to juggle work with caring responsibilities. 
it's difficult to juggle work at a time when work hasn't changed. Practically, you know, the things have changed like online teaching and so forth, but the amount of work has definitely not d- decreased. Mm-hmm. The kind of nature of work in itself hasn't decreased. You know, there's still expectations that people in universities should be producing work. You should be producing research. You should be writing. You should be teaching. Um, you should be engaging with academic thoughts. And that's difficult when there's a pandemic going on, let alone having to juggle that in in kind of domestic spaces as well. And this is, of course, the case for everyone where home and work life is so blurred right now. Academia has always had a problem with the blurring of hours and the ways in which academic life and conferences and seminars and so forth seep into our evenings and our weekends anyway. But the pandemic has really, I think, brought to light how how difficult this can be for many people. In a way, it's almost exacerbating long-standing issues, right, of precarity and balancing workload, which proved challenging at, at the best of times. I mean, I was nodding furiously all the way through. Um, Samita talking particularly her, her final point about academia's always had a problem with blurring um, the boundaries between work and home life, not least because academics are often encouraged to see their work as a vocation, which makes it quite hard to push back in terms of saying you want to spend a certain amount of hours on your work or you'd like to be paid fairly to do it. Sarah Crook wrote a wonderful kind of roundtable where she drew together the experience of carers in the pandemic. So people working in academia who had caring responsibilities, I think primarily parenting responsibilities, which really made me think a lot. I I don't have children. And um, so in some ways, I haven't had those those struggles of kind of balancing childcare with with teaching, which I know a lot of my colleagues and it has to be said predominantly my female colleagues have been really struggling with but it was also really interesting because at one point um there was a conversation on twitter which again um sarah started where she said you know now that we're doing all of these events remotely um please can we stop scheduling talks and things in the evening because i you know if you have small children that's a really difficult time to attend talks and seminars um and and repeatedly scheduling stuff at seven o'clock in the evening is just essentially making sure that parents can't attend and i sort of nodded and i thought yes and i like this and i retweeted it and then a lot of my friends who are parents kind of responded to it and were saying, but I'm home, I'm homeschooling. And so please don't put stuff during the day because actually that's really difficult for me to attend because I, I kind of need to push my work stuff into the evening. And I know that I, I, I'm the convener of a seminar at the IHR and, and some people I know have really enjoyed the fact that because we're now remote um, and everything's now online, that they've been able to sort of prop their laptop up in the corner and be like getting their kids dinner ready, for example. And that actually this has made things accessible to them that if we were sitting in the IHR in a seminar room would just be completely inaccessible because they wouldn't be able to be out at that time. And it, it would be really kind of would really impact on their lives. One of the things that the pandemic has has done is it's, it's really highlighted these inexisting inequalities and the problems of precarity and the problems of childcare which are just something that as a society we have not really reckoned with the, the fact that we have you know no state provided childcare essentially for one and two year olds and it you're just supposed to solve this problem yourself somehow and pretend that you're not a parent during working hours is ridiculous but it has also shown us that there are some possibilities for flexibility maybe um and i know lots of people talking about things like conferences again particularly if you perhaps particularly if you have small children it might it would be really nice to maintain this level of flexibility, to maintain this level of accessibility for these things so that we do kind of make these things a bit more available to people who otherwise just might be completely excluded from them. Uh, I just really completely endorse what people said about how this has uh, highlighted existing 
um, crisis, really, of care provision in this country for small children, um, for for older people. I mean, and essentially, these this is what falls almost exclusively on women. And I do think that there is a conversation to be had between men and women about this as well. There's a difficult sexual politics that um, still needs to be ongoing and maybe more out in the open about it too. But principally, I think it's it's it's, it's also really to do with uh, the priorities that we have in terms of, of you know, public provision and so on. And that there really needs to be a, a, you know, a, a major rethinking of priorities uh, in public sector priorities. I think one of the hopes people have is that we come out of this pandemic feeling um, you know, much more militant about saying, look, it can't go on like this, you know, that, that um, people trying to, you know, balance impossible priorities and um, and that really and that women have really really been at the sharp edge of this I, I completely agree with Sarah Crook and everyone else who who's been um, been saying that it's going to be a struggle I think given that this is such a broad and, and diverse topic and one that we could talk about for ages with all the various different intersecting things that impact sort of women's experience in the academic field of history we wanted to kind of come to a conclusion and ask if you'd experienced any changes that better supported women in academia, or if you had any thoughts on on how we could do that to make it a more diverse faculty. There's so much you could say about what is needed to be done. There's so many structural issues with universities um, that affect so many people, um, and often women are at the brunt of those issues around precarity, around the gender pay gap, around issues of care and responsibility and support for people who have care and responsibilities. I think what I want to say, though, is it seems like maybe there's been a bit of a change in the last few years, but a few, about three, four years ago, there was a big focus on things like Athena Swan kind of training courses. So I, about five years ago, I was my university sent me on a training course for women in higher education. They, they're kind of tick box exercises that universities can used to feel better about themselves but they don't change anything structurally and they put the burden on women you know to kind of engage you know with these kind of training courses and certificates and so forth roots and branch change as they say has to take place it goes down to recruitment and widening participation and the work that charlotte was talking about earlier that she did as a phd student i think that's something that has to be much more ingrained there are issues around how disparate the sector is and how different universities are in terms of their kind of provision of care and widened participation. So I think universality would really help. There are issues around recruitment, uh, as I said, from undergraduate level right up to academics. There's, there, you know, we could talk about curricula as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many things that are, <laughs> are kind of that need, you know, a real revolution I think I feel like we've been saying this in academia for so many years. Hopefully, after this pandemic, whenever this pandemic is over, we can have a real attempt to try and enact some real structural change in universities. For four weeks before this pandemic started, we were standing on picket lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were on strike, you know, and we were striking for workloads and to end precarity. Um, and for the gender pay gap and the race pay gap. And, you know, those issues haven't gone away, but our universities can get away with not talking about them anymore because we're talking about the pandemic. And actually, they've made everything worse, right? Like, 
I'm sure I'm not the only person who my workload has gone up so much in the pandemic compared to the workload that was already impossible enough that we were going on strike about it. And whilst these things are universal problems, I I think probably universal problems in academia, they're always going to impact on marginalised groups worse. Um, Precarity is harder if you don't have savings. Workload is harder if you are already feeling isolated within your department and you can't build alliances with people and get support in your work. People of colour and women, and women of colour especially, are going to suffer from these problems more than other people. I agree with Samita that Athena's one is is destructuralising these issues and it's making it instead that individual women should take responsibility for like leaning in in the workplace and getting ahead through doing management courses and things. And and actually we need to deal with these big structural issues which will make all academics' lives easier. But, you know, should have a disproportionately positive effect on the people who are at the moment most marginalised. On a personal level, the thing that helped me is is building my own networks of women and men as well you know I have I have lots of male academic friends who are very supportive but it is the like networks of female academics that have been so important to me and more senior female academics who are often extremely generous in their time in their ability to reach out and support younger women and their ability to kind of uplift your work and to talk about you to other people you know there's a whole generation of female academics who spend a lot of time just singing the praises of of younger academics and really supporting them. And and that's been really important to me as well. I think the business about senior women offering support and um, solidarity and so on with younger colleagues is partly a legacy of how the opening up of the discipline to the degree it has opened up has really been so recent. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. If you look down staff lists at universities and, you know, there might be, I mean, you know, one or two women in entire departments and the battle to get also to get questions of gender, women's history and so on um, inside. I'm not convinced that that's a battle that's been completely won by a long shot either. Just on the question of the sort of ethos um, of history departments, I have been very struck that during the pandemic, informally, um, a group of us um, came together, all women from history, to share experiences. And what I was very struck by is was that we, we were very, very conscious about um, the kind of burnout Mm-hmm. that was going on, not just women, but men too. We felt that the, the men were far, far less likely to speak out about. This kind of emotional work has, in a sense, always been left to women. There are aspects of the way that women handle themselves inside the academy, which is both how we got there and what we what we went through to get there and the difficulties of some of that, which has created a kind of sense of reach out, I think, often to younger people. You know, but also I think that, that, you know, there is something about taking into academic life um, issues about um, connectedness, um, empathy, you know, the kind of emotional textures <laughs> that I think, you know, it, 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 these, are, these are things that they, they play a really crucial role in people's experiences in academic life. And they're often not very easy to speak out loud about. That's a really great and insightful point on how important those connections are. I mean, really for ev- anyone working in academia, but for women especially. It's been really fascinating to, to hear you all talk. And um, this seems like a really good place to kind of draw this conversation to a close. It's been great to chat with you all and, and hear about your thoughts on, you know, such a 
expansive uh, topic and set of issues. So thank you so much to our guests this week, Dr. Samita Mukherjee, Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley, and Professor Barbara Taylor. And thank you to all of you for listening. And please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can find the Mile End Institute on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. And if you can sign up to the mailing list on the website, you'll always hear first about future events and projects. And if you'd like to hear more from Connie and I, you can find our podcast, No Man's Land, at soundcloud.com forward slash QM Women in History. But that's all we've got time for today. I'm Connie. And I'm Sophie. And that was the Mile End Institute podcast.